I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallaxies listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine and the Gaza War, this time with guest John Robb, who returns after an appearance back in the days of the pandemic. It's been a while since we've last spoke to him, but John Robb is the author of Brave New War, The Next Stage of Terrorism and the End of Globalization. He's written on subjects such as open source networks and fourth generation warfare, and lately at his Global Guerrillas blog and Substack. He's been writing about the information war going on globally with regards to Israel, Palestine, and the Gaza war. And from his point of view, Israel is losing that war, especially in the long term. We'll be discussing why in the conversation to follow. I'm pretty sure that my audience may not agree with John on every point, Uh, We also should be clear about the terms he's using. Uh, So I think when John is talking about the left, he's not even necessarily talking about, uh, you know, leftist writers that say Counterpunch or readers of Counterpunch, uh, which is a pretty hard left publication, but rather the left in the colloquial sense. So that sort of big tent that ranges from, you know, the farthest ends to the... Democratic Party. Just want to note that before the conversation begins. With all that in mind, let's get to it with John Robb of Global Gorillas.
Welcome back to Parallax Views. The guest that I always find very interesting to speak with. John Robb is the author of Brave New War, and he runs the Global Gorillas blog and Substack. We're going to be talking about what he calls the tribal war over Israel uh, and the sort of networked tribal warfare that's going on right now. Uh, how are you doing, John? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm very good. I was very interested to be speaking with you uh, after you were hearing you on my friend Scott Horton's show. Uh, and you guys were both talking about this global info information battle that is happening and why, uh, from your perspective at least, Israel isn't uh, coming out on top. Maybe you can give your analysis. Yeah. For the last uh, 20, 30 years, Israel has been in control of the information environment. They've controlled the perception of of the country as well as you know their quest to defend themselves and and uh, grow. And that that started to change in 2021. And uh, with the uh, with an earlier uh, incident that resulted in bombing of Gaza, and I saw a shift there, and I started writing about it. What was happening is that years and years of kind of educational priming uh, that framed colonialism and uh, racism as, as things to fight against and on a global scale, and also uh, combining that with uh, networked connectivity and, and mobilization had started to turn on Israel. And um, it was spreading through you know, network connections, mostly on TikTok and X, and Israel didn't have control of those. You know these these what I call them I call them network tribes and these network tribes uh, are formed in opposition to things that they're waging war with. They're waging war against racism, anti-racism. They don't have a positive narrative about how they're going to solve it. Or you know, what, if you asked anyone in a network tribe uh, opposing racism what justice looks like, they couldn't tell you. Right? They couldn't agree on exactly what it would look like or what anti-colonialism actually looks like. They don't know. They just know their enemy when they see it. Um, and they work together to build a pattern of behavior uh, and speech to identify that enemy. And that uh, pattern is kind of a, a, a joint effort, uh, you know, people joining together in this network to kind of push that pattern forward, spread it, grow it. And then they take every bit of news as it you know, flows through the network and then analyzes it when the, when the context of that pattern. And these these networks aren't like centralized; they're very decentralized. Yeah, no, I, I started. Yeah, I I came into this realization and and of of, of network tribes from my work in warfare earlier, uh, back in Brave New War and, and back in the aughts during the Iraq War, and that you know where I identified an open source dynamic to how war was being fought. Instead of one group in Iraq, we had seventy. <laughs> There's 70 different groups that we were fighting. And if you wiped out one, there'd be another one pop up the next day. Um, each had their own motivations for participating in that war. Um, and that, you know, as that methodology of warfare evolved, it started to move online into online protest, um, moved online to online politics. We saw that with Trump. They put him into office, protected him against uh, any kind of assault from the, from the establishment. Um, and kept him you know, moving forward in terms of his popularity and, and um, electability for quite a long time. 
Um, and then it started moving into um, network tribes and tribalism, largely in opposition. It started with opposition to Trump, but it's evolved since then. And tribes, the tribal structure kind of solves a problem with open source is, you know, open source protests, open source insurgencies, they have a goal. And once they reach the goal or they fail to hit, reach the goal, they dissolve. You know, they fall apart. And um, the goal is the only thing that keeps them together. But network tribalism solves the cohesion problem and the durability and the longevity by building a pattern of, uh, that describes an enemy, by connecting people to push that pattern forward. And, you know, because we pattern match now when we're online, uh, we don't read in long form anymore in order to handle kind of the torrential information flows. We, we only pick the things out of the flow that match our patterns, match the patterns we're curating. And if we're co-curating it with many, many other people, that's how we see the world. So these tribes are, have some durability and they tend to focus on these different areas. So up until relatively recently, uh, you know, Israel was part of that kind of leftist network, uh, network tribal alliance. The right, right, the tribes of the right are different, and they operate in different principles. But that network tribal alliance, anti-Semitism was a was a was a uh, provided a cohesion for a group of people that would use the tribal that tribal dynamic, and it also included state elements, and also included marketing elements, and and uh, you know other traditional establishment kind of means of, of moving it forward, and. The Gaza, or the you know the Gaza kind of bombing broke that apart. Um, the rest of the tribes turned on the tribe that was protecting its anti-Semitism because they wanted to include Israel stay in that protection. Anti-Zionism was, was trying to be forcibly included in, in in their in their framework. And so you know we've seen a lot of a lot of uh, of, of battles over that. I mean, the recent battle at, it, over the Ivies, you know, where the Ivy League presidents were up there being grilled, was um, led by Bill Ackerman, who was, you know, a famous bankster. <laughs> he even used congressional intervention to try to uh, to advance his short positions and made tons of money that way. The, guy, the guy's pretty pretty scummy from from that perspective. Well, he's been investing in his university for a long time, supporting leftist education and the like. Because I'm kind of neutral, so I see I try and see it from both sides. He started this whole attack on the universities in order to get anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism folded back into that pantheon of, of, of that tribal pantheon. And uh, you know, a lot of the wars we're seeing right now in the last couple of weeks have been battles we online um, have been in that space. You mean battles to sort of um, conflate anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? Or to connect them, um, right? So, yeah. So basically, what Bill and 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 his compatriots are they're trying to do is they're trying to reinsert Zionism back into the pantheon of, of the left, get it get it those kind of protections that they used to have inside the universities as well as in society, and then also include anti-Zionism. And you could see that kind of push uh, the way they frame the congressional attacks. And there was a congressional resolution that connected anti-Zionism. Is equal to anti-Semitism. Um, that was just passed last week. So that's what the battle is over. It's funny to see all the right, the networked right, you know, a part of it at least, you know, riding to the defense of Bill Ackerman and what he's doing, just because he's you know putting raking the uh, university presidents over the coals. They don't quite understand that he he doesn't really care about 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 uh, uh, trying to return to kind of traditional values of 
of education, um, that he's not anti-woke. He just wants anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism to become part of that woke culture. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty dynamic, pretty interesting. Um, you know, the report I'm writing today, uh, I'm going to have it out later today is on, um, you know, all the kind of nonviolent hate crimes we see where people put up flyers and people put, uh, deface things, uh, with, you know, symbology that's hateful, um, or they call in bomb threats. And what I've seen over the last, uh, uh, six, seven years, um, since it really started taking off is that almost all of them were hoaxes. Almost all of them were fake. They're manufactured. People were doing it for either to evoke sympathy for their tribal network, or they were doing it for some odd kind of insane personal reasons that, you know, most recent, uh, arrest was in a Peruvian man who was stalking you know, teenage girls and, in order, and he started calling in bomb threats to J, you know, Jewish community centers in the U.S. and inserting their numbers when, when, you know, if they rejected them. So he's like, just nutty, nutty stuff. And the third one is um, we're seeing uh, you know, states get involved and states trying to you know, push that just yesterday, they had a, a story of a, of a Chinese national who was jumping from state to state to state and putting a Nazi graffiti on, on, on synagogues. I just, it, it's a nutty thing. I mean, but it's just increasing the amount of turmoil in the United States in the perfect op. And there are Chinese operatives here, and I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorists. They even had Chinese police stations inside major U.S. cities that would police Chinese citizens here or, and, and, uh, uh, Chinese immigrants to try to force them into to do things or stop doing things that the the Chinese government wanted. What's the goal of um, why create fake hate crimes if people are confused with with what the modus sure. operandi of that is? Okay, well, uh, one of the ways that a network tribe grows. So, if you're an anti-racist network tribe, the way you grow is through an empathy trigger. And we don't have the kind of same kind of kind of defenses against empathy that we have in the offline world. In the online world, we see it, and it's and that thought and that example, that video of, of like say George Floyd, is right in our faces, right in our in our in our, in our stream. Um, and that uh, empathy isn't you know what most people think. It's not sympathy. Okay, it's a, it's a mental modeling of the victim, and it's involuntary. It's involuntary since our birth. It's always been that way. We just learned to modulate it. In fact, sociopaths are people that don't have that involuntary mechanism. <laughs> they they have to actually learn how to simulate it later. So, but it's a huge amount of information transfer, and the net result within the tribal dynamic is that people form a fictive kinship with that victim. They become like a niece, a nephew, a son, a daughter, a parent, and that uh, that connects them and. Uh, it spreads like wildfire online. I mean, you saw it with George Floyd, it went shoom. And we see that with, uh, we saw that with, you know, every single kind of violent incident where there's a victim and there's depicted in the correct way and it's framed in the correct way and it spreads. Um, so, so you real, real would do quick, those crimes. In, yeah. in that regard, what you're saying is, uh, well, we'll go on with what you were saying about why you were going to do the crimes and then I'll cut in later. Yeah, no, um, you know, you, you stage an incident to create that kind of uh, uh, empathy needed to drive your tribe's growth. And um, 
and drive the support online. And since online information processing is upstream of standard news processing, you know, establishment news is always, you know, they'll take the, the information that as is presented and framed in the online environment and then run it in the nightly news. You want to win there. You want to win in the online environment. So you create these things. Oh, I mean, okay, for instance, just, just recently at Harvard, one of the things that really kicked things off was this Jewish student that was being accosted by a protest as, as he went across campus. And there was a video of it, of, of the protesters, you know, standing in his way and kind of pushing him back. Well, the reality was that they were trying to stop being doxxed. Okay. And, and, and the reason why they were stopped, wanted to stop being doxxed is that just a week or two prior, pictures of them were being put on trucks and driven around Harvard Yard, uh, you know, saying that they were the new face of anti-Zionism and there was efforts to try to stop them from getting employment opportunities. So they set up mechanisms to try to stop people from taking pictures. So this kid was actually taking pictures of the, of the protesters up close, trying to, you know, document them so they could be doxxed. But there was a video of, of him doing that, but they didn't include the element of, of him trying to take a video of the, of the protesters. They just include that, that where, the, where the protesters were blocking him. Very, very smart tactic. And they kind of stumbled into it, and they were able to use that as an empathy trigger that ran on traditional news, like nonstop on Fox, and, and went across the internet and became kind of the basis for Bill Ackerman's attack. So this is all a you know really complex stuff. A lot of it's fake. A lot of it's manufactured. A lot of it's opportunistic, and uh, it's about driving this online war. And if you can win on the line, online, you you win the war. Problem problem Israel's facing is though it doesn't control TikTok, doesn't control X, um, and it didn't doesn't control that baseline educational element that's been going on for the last 20, 30 years, and they lost everybody under forty. I want to get more into that and why that's occurred. So, but 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 yeah. first, I just want to give an idea of the sort of model you're using to deal with network tribalism. So, there's these sure. empathy triggers, which is you know we see videos, pictures, and stories of people being victimized uh, by various aggressions, and then that's put into a moral framing through tribal uh, pattern matching. And those empathy triggers, we we essentially see these victims we put that into a moral frame we say hey look at this aggressor look what they're doing to the victim and then we form a fictive kinship with the people that through those empathy triggers we see as the victim is that you know a good and multiple empathy triggers multiple examples of, of of these crimes provides a pattern of behavior of the enemy okay so and then it there's an imminence of threat existential threat that could be hyped and amplified as a result of that. All these benefits for for network tribalism, you know, come out of this. I mean, at root, though, I mean, what we're seeing in network tribalism is an attempt to kind of create a kind of a common value framework that's going to spread globally on this network. I mean, really in nascent stages of it. Um, I mean, since we're in the kind of big global technologically driven transformation that we saw after the printing press hit, right? And we, you know, saw the Reformation, and we saw bureaucracy take over feudal monarchies, and we saw, you know, nation states emerge, and 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 we saw markets, and we saw science develop. All that stuff was from the printing press, and it was like tra- traumatic and turbulent. In this case, we see these networks forming to create a, create a new value framework that works across a bunch of uh, countries, and and that have. Uh, 
conglomeration of different religions of you know largely in decline right now, uh, cultures that are in decline, and that they're trying to kind of create this common framework. But the problem is that they've weaponized it and made it aggressive and and turned it into a kind of a maximalist model instead of a minimalist model, trying to force everybody into this, you know, if you don't hit all of these, do all of these things, then you're you're evil and you're awful. We're going to oppose you and try to destroy you. And maximalist models don't work. They lead to, my worry is that if they are able to coerce enough corporations into compliance with their maximalist models, uh, network tribes and and governments, uh, is that we'll end up in kind of a long night scenario. Uh, where it's, we've aligned all the AIs and we've aligned all the networks, we've aligned all the corporations, aligned all the governments with this maximalist value set. And then it's barren. It won't, it's unchanging. It just kind of, you can't have a view that's outside of that and all innovation dies and all variation dies. uh, Social and political stagnation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's always been a big worry that once we networked everyone and everyone's largely the same, that's the end of the species, right? So, you know, the, there's no evolution at that point. And we evolve now through society. We evolve, our social interactions are a form of evolution. And if everyone's brought back to this one way, we're done. So I've jumped to, to now to the end of species, but it, it, yeah, so that's kind of how, how, how it works. You know, the very particulars, I mean, the concrete thing with Israel though, is that they've They've done all their polling and they found that everyone under 80% of the people under 40 don't support Israel and they don't support what they're doing uh, in Gaza, ethnic cleansing or whatever. That's the way they see it. And uh, they have an outlet for mobilizing, which is through TikTok, which is the biggest network in the world. And uh, they get more views on those anti-Israel posts than all the nightly news viewers combined and newspaper readers and everyone else in the mainstream media all combined, they get more on that on TikTok every day. How does, so, one thing I will always hear in response to talking about the sort of online um, tribal warfare that you're speaking about is people will say to me, well, you know, if you look at something like Twitter, uh, Twitter trends educate it and most people aren't even using it politically. But my answer to that would be, you know, Twitter, TikTok, all these different social media networks actually do have an effect on how the media covers these things as well. Oh, it's a hundred, hundred percent. Yeah, no, I agree, hundred percent. It's how the. So you've heard of the Russell conjugation, right? Okay, uh, Bertrand Russell had this. You know, how you use language convey can change everything, and it's like if you say somebody is strong-willed, that's a positive version of it. And if you say somebody is obstinate, meaning that they're unwilling to change their mind, that's a new, more neutral, but slightly negative. And you could say somebody's pigheaded, right? Or it's the same thing that you're pointing out is the person's unwilling to change their mind, but you have three different ways of saying that. So the New York Times, the reason why people read the New or used to read the New York Times was that it gave that the Russell conjugation to all news and all events based on what a very educated, erudite, up, Upper East Side resident would think when they saw that, right? So it's the tone and how they frame the issues that really set them apart. That's why the media exists. And um, it's not about conveying facts. Um, it's conveying facts with a framework. And so what the media has found is that they have to play the information first 
online or take the information off the online space and they're testing out a bunch of different frames to find the one that works. It's the most popular and most successful because if they get the frame wrong, they're attacked. They're they're eviscerated online. Oh, they said it this way. And now look at this. They're awful. All these reporters are – so all these reporters are running these things online first and or taking the tone cues from the online environment before they – they orient the news in their in their publications and are on the nightly news. Yeah, so it's all upstream. And since the online space is dominated by the tribalism, the network tribalism on the right is more disruptive, more maneuver warfare oriented than moral warfare guerrilla. That's the dynamic. I want to read something from your article, uh, The Tribal War Over Israel, which I think is on Substack, but I, I also found a copy of it for people to read on City Journal. Uh, you said, you write, Asked whether Israel's response to the Hamas attack was fully justified, 81% of Americans over 65 said that it was. For those right. aged 50 to 64, 56% agreed. Ages 35 to 49, 44%. And for ages 18 to 34, only 27% agreed. Now, something people will say is that, well, you know, still the vast majority of Americans are pro-Israel. However, that polling indicates that there's been a massive shift from even over oh, a decade ago. So what I've said to people is, I actually agree with your analysis. I think even if uh, things haven't changed to the point where a majority are anti-Israel, there's definitely been this dramatic shift. And if it keeps going that way, uh, especially with young people, and as the older uh, elderly generation dies off, you know there will be a, a complete change at some point in how we see uh, Israel and uh, the Palestine issue. So, to me, I, I just think long term, long term, maybe not short term, but long term, Israel is losing the information war. Oh yeah, no, twenty years are done. I mean, absolutely done. Is that? Almost all their support is in that over 60 demographic. Almost all the people who watch, six out of seven people who watch uh, the nightly news are over 55. Only one million out of seven are below that. And, and Israel has a pretty good lock on the nightly news pass. But those people are going to die out. In five, 10 years, those, most of those guys are going to get to, you know, a huge percentage of those people will be dead. All right. And not voting. And this younger demographic, you know, most people under 50 get the majority of their news online and not directly through the news organizations. They get it indirectly through their social networks and it's framed. It's framed in, in, in a kind of anti-Israel stance. I mean, I saw the metamorphosis of the organization opposing Israel start from they tried the excuse for Hamas, didn't work. They tried to be pro-Palestinian. That got them defending every Palestinian's action. That didn't work. They, they didn't. They tried anti-Israeli focusing on individuals. That didn't work. What worked, what tended to work better, was anti-Israel state, that nameless, faceless bureaucracy, um, and their decision making, um, and that allowed them to, as a from an open source dynamic, minimize the barriers to entry to for all the participants. So you're not opposing individual you know, people. As individuals, you're not posing, you know, you're not having to defend Palestinians' actions. You don't have to defend anything Hamas does. All you're focusing on is what Israel, the state, is doing. And uh, it seems to be working. So you're focusing on things like, oh, Israel is bombing, 
you know, Gaza, they're doing this, Netanyahu is doing this. So you're focusing on what the state apparatus is doing. Right. It, it, no mention, you don't have to mention anything having to do with religion, and you don't have to mention anything having to do with uh, ethnicity. You don't have to do any. It, here's a state conducting ethnic cleansing, or, or increasingly now it's genocide. So there's kind of been a push to try to create, change this, shift this just slightly to anti-genocide. Um, but that got murked up a little bit with the the Harvard thing because uh, the claim that, and you know, this is another example. Of like the way most hate speech is framed is it's usually it's usually a um, manufactured incident. It's like hypersensitivity, and if you have control of the mouthpiece, you could probably pull it off. They were pretty successful. The, the pro-Israel side was pretty successful in getting. Um, Cong Congress and and a lot of the public on the right to adopt the uh, uh, idea that you know from the river to the sea kind of thing you know that the whole statement is, is actually a call for genocide and most of the kids almost every single kid that was actually using it at any university would never have said genocide they never would have said what they're thinking in terms of is a single state or two state solution at this point I I don't see any kind of future for Israel except for a single state. There's no two-state solution, um, and a single state like South Africa. I mean, I've like I said before on Scott's show is like, you know, I've been to South Africa in the '80s and I saw what it was like to see it before it was gone, and this feels the same way. Why do you say that? What? Why does it feel the same way? Why do you think it's moving in that direction? Well, if there, if 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 Israel loses support of the United States and the EU, which the demographics. Are against them on this, and the the networks and the information flow that's going on on those those uncontrolled networks is pushing that way. Um, they can't exist on their own. They can't exist in isolation. They're a tiny, tiny place. Even you know, we're much worse off than South Africa was. Uh, at you know, going into uh, BDS kind of thing, uh, and that uh, they won't last long. You know, start to getting travel for privileges revoked, starting to get, you know, uh, subsidies revoked, um, getting uh, supply lines kind of under the threat. And then their enemies start picking on them without the kind of supply that they need to to, to defend themselves. Uh, it's indefensible. So in a two state thing, everything, every time somebody tries to work on a two state solution, it's usually there's no way to divide that territory without immediately plunging it back into war. Uh, and, and that no one would agree on anything. You're going to just have to have protections for each and 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 um, vote. You know, voting for a coalition government. It 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 unwieldy. It's awful, but that's the only solution in a, in, in this modern environment. And I, I'm not advocating. I'm just saying it's almost inevitable at this point. With regards to how, so the the sort of pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel uh, tribal networks that you're talking about. How do they go from you know, I, I saw it myself, people that would focus on Hamas and they would say, well, Hamas has a right to, you know, Palestinians have a right to armed resistance. So therefore, we're not going to attack Hamas. How does it move from that right after October 7th to the tribal network sort of ditching that and focusing more on the Israeli state's actions? How, how do these networks evolve? Because right. I don't think it's okay. done in a conspiratorial way. It's sort of uh, no. sense making. No, it's yeah. Yeah, it's 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 the way open source works, and um, open source innovation. We saw this in Iraq, so yeah, it maybe maybe easier to describe it in that 
framework. It, so you have a bunch of different groups and they're interacting against an enemy, US. Uh, they're trying out their different IED approaches and the US comes up with a counter to ID, the IDs that are being used. You know, there's a $3 billion program working on, you know, counter IED tech. And these groups start working on ways to get around that. And the ones that, when it finally works as a way to overcome that, op, that, that, uh, that counter, it spreads like wildfire. Everyone copies it. The same thing with attacks and who to attack, how to attack them. When they find a target of opportunity that's, that's easy to attack and achieve success, that success then gets broadcast out to all the different groups because of the way the coverage of the news works and 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 way the mobile phone system worked in, in Iraq. Um, the same thing with this is that if they're they're working on on ending Israel as as a as a theocracy, as a, as a theocratic democracy or whatever it is, and if that's the goal, then anytime they run, you know, a set of arguments that run into immediate opposition, get them in trouble. Like, it, like it, for instance, in Harvard and, and the Ivies right now, they they wiping out and changing their language because of the opposition. So you'll not see the same kind of language used again. It'll be it'll be refined and improved because there's the opposition that they'll face in saying it is going to diminish. And if they use the right kind of language, they um, attract more participants into their rallies, and they they uh, it grows faster. It it it. That kind of tinkering, you know, that kind of innovation rate is very, very high. And it's in some ways, it's kind of subconscious. I mean, they see what works and they copy and see what, you know, doesn't work. And when people get in trouble or people run on, you know, they run a rally based on a premise and it doesn't, no one shows up because they don't, you know, agree with the language and, and, and the arguments being made or very few people, they'll, they'll give it up in favor of something better. So, so real quick in that regard. So, I guess another way to put this is you're trying to get the broadest tent of people into whatever your your tribal network is or your coalition. So, you know, you may start off with saying, oh, Hamas, uh, right to armed resistance. But if you realize uh, subconsciously or consciously that, you know, people aren't uh, being brought into the network with that, you know, you may move to just saying ceasefire now, or you may move to just criticizing the Israeli state, and that can bring in a bigger number of people right. into the tent. Yeah, it, it hasn't, it, it, it works well in the online environment. And um, because I mean, you, you're never ever in any kind of online uh, argument forced to defend the actions of Hamas. But the problem is that, or at least, for the uh, traditional TV environment and the like, it doesn't have a nice crossover because what the TV networks will do and what the newspapers will do is that they'll take, you know, qualified representatives usually that represent the Palestinians or whatever. They're forced by by history to defend the actions of either Hamas or the Palestinians. So um, there's not not a requirement for these network tribes because there's you know lots and lots of participants um, and they don't have that kind of baggage. They don't even have to, you don't have to be Palestinian. It, the thing with fictive kinship is it brings in people to get irrationally angry and get extremely connected to a conflict that they have no connection to in the real world. I mean, they might not know any Palestinians <laughs> or any Israelis, but they're, you know, in their personal life uh, and is thousands of miles away. Yet, because of that fictive kinship that they forged on the online environment, They'll get irrationally angry from the seeing seeing events. 
seeing uh, kids getting bombed or, or terrorist attacks being made. Do you think that's at work with, um, you know, like I, I know a lot of young Jewish people that are seeing the footage from Gaza and they're they're siding with, uh, you know, the sort of pro-Palestinian contingent because they're seeing that. So it's even bringing in young Jewish people. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's a a lot of people who weren't extremely, you know, pro-Israel Zionists in the Jewish community appear to be just drifting away. They're even kind of neutralized. They they don't participate. They're not even looking at it, or they're they're actively joining the groups pushing for ceasefire and a re- revision of how things go. But you know, part of that also is like the anti-BB thing, um, and uh, in general, you know, there is a, a a large political component here on the you know from Netanyahu's um, kind of policies and his approach to things, but um, it's now. Kind of erupted at a higher level that involves actually the should the state in its current form exist and it's not the right of israel to exist it's the right to israel to exist without enfranchising all the people that live within its control i mean there's millions of palestinians who don't have the right to vote they don't have the rights and eventually that's going to be what is forced in into 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 reality you said enfranchising. You meant disenfranchising, right? They're no, I said they're not enfranchised. Okay. Uh, they're not given the you know the rights and 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 that a citizen would be given for living in areas that are under. It, you know what happened in like South Africa is that they got more and more people like immigrating in because the economy there was better than all the other economies in, in Southern Africa, and they put everyone in homelands. And these homelands were overcrowded and they had very little infrastructure. There was no investment being made or relatively little. But they didn't every night, like in Johannesburg and other places, you know, those places would be empty because everyone would leave. You know, they'd go back to their their homelands. It it's a it was untenable over the you know over the long term. It just could not exist if we have any kind of semblance of uh, loyalty to the kind of prevailing morality. I also wanted to ask you, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, it'll tie into, I guess, the free speech debate that is raging right now. Are you familiar with um, the Jerusalem Declaration and the Nexus document? Have you heard of those by any chance? Uh, no. So real quick, uh, so there's there's a debate over how to define anti-Semitism within the American oh, right. yeah, Jewish community. Okay. So there's yep. the IHRA definition, which says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And then there was the Jerusalem Declaration and the Nexus Task Force document, which said, no, this is bad news. That's that's too broad a definition of what anti-Semitism is. And these are like American Jewish academics and whatnot, a lot of whom are pro-Israel that were saying, we can't go with the IHRA definition. That's why these other two documents come out. And they sort of argued that we need a very narrow definition of what anti-Semitism is, and we can't call all forms of anti-Zionism or criticism of the state of Israel uh, anti-Semitism. And I was wondering, uh, do you think that the pro-Israel elements that are saying any form of criticism of Israel or any form of anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, do you think they're shooting themselves in the foot? Because I tend to agree with the, the people who wrote the Nexus document and the Jerusalem Declaration that, yeah, right. uh, a broad definition of anti-Semitism 
that doesn't take into account that there's different forms of criticism and different forms of anti-Zionism that aren't always anti-Semitic, pushing a broad definition is actually going to alienate people. Yeah, no, I mean, you got to think in terms of um, anti-Semitism as a concept was built carefully over 70 years. Okay. And um, they gained traction, you know, you know, once a, you know, up, up to the mainstream level, it is now. Um, and it's a shield. And um, every time it's used inappropriately, it takes damage. And if you connect it to the state, every action of that state that's viewed negatively is doing damage to anti-Semitism as a, as a protective shield for Jews around the world and the entire diaspora. So the way it's going right now is if they tie anti-Semitism to anti-Zionism or anti-Israel, is that they'll end up destroying anti-Semitism as a shield, as a term of, of, of a negative term that you can apply to people who are attacking Jews globally. And that uh, is, you know, inverts the kind of concept behind Israel. Israel was the idea that it was a sanctuary you know, kind of the last ditch. If you ever had to go somewhere, you can go. It'd protect you into something that was actually doing damage to the Israeli or the Jewish community globally. That it's actually dragging it down. It's putting them at risk um, and, and ripping away the thing that they have that protects them against encroachment and 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 danger, um, which is this moral shield. This this and it's been you know it's being wasted and squandered to in defense of of. Israel's actions. And um, that's not good for everybody. I mean, when when the Jewish community needs it, it's not going to be there. And you already see the effects of what happened at Harvard and the Ivies and what's happening, you know, globally is that now anti-Semitism is not considered part of the less leftist tribal, you know, uh, network. I mean, it's not considered a term that they will aggressively defend. Because it's been tied to Israel, if they disconnected it and said we're not going to, you know, do that, they they could rejoin and, and rejoin that tribal alliance and actually gain a high degree of safety as a result of that. I know there's going to be some listeners that will say, because I, I have a lot of left wing listeners that would say, well, I'm very concerned about anti semitism, but I'm anti Zionist. What, what do you want to? So, can you explain what you mean by anti semitism is not part of the uh, sort of tribal network of the left, because I know there oh, will be leftists got, that will say, mm-hmm. "Yeah, no, I mean, it got ca- cast out when 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 it, um, they tried to use anti-Semitism to shut down um, Gaza protests at universities, right? So, I mean, it was clearly cast out. It wasn't was it was ignored. And when the term doesn't have any weight anymore with that group, it's just you know people aren't going to ri- you know r- rally to the defense of of people who are being encroached upon based on that term, if. You know, in general, I mean, I, I do think that you could reinsert it and it could could come back, but it, it can't be tied as it currently with the congressional resolution, the way this the, the attacks on that uh, university presence has been going, if it's connected to anti-Zionism. How do you see the right wing uh, responding to the free speech element of this debate? Because uh, you talked about this with Scott Horton. You know, you even have people like Daryl Cooper of Martyr Maid, who I would very much say is part of uh what would charitably be called the dissident right. And I, I know you're right. friends with Daryl. I've talked to him before. But even someone like him, who I, I think he sees Israel-Palestine as having 
uh, bad faith players on both sides. Even he gets attacked now as uh, oh, being no, an yeah. anti-Semite. And, and it, I, he's one of these people yeah. that he doesn't like to be told what to do. And I think a lot of people on the right don't like to be told what to do. Oh, yeah. No, the, the, that's that exactly happened on the right. The dissident right is very strong. And when they get told not you know what they can't say and that even if they're trying to be even handed, they're not allowed to be even handed. They're being called anti-Semites for being even handed in a- analyzing the conflict and pointing things out like Daryl. And, you know, what happened with uh, Candace Owen is like he, she was attacked by Ben Shapiro and and immediately she went over and, and, and started running running uh, uh, podcasts that were, you know, that cast Israel as, as, a, as a genocidal state. Right. Well, she had Norman Finkelstein on. Yeah. Yeah. No. Once she brought Norman on, it was like, wow. And she introduced him to two million people on the right. Two million. His views. Um, and he didn't come off horribly. I mean, he, he can at times, but he, he was he was very, very cogent. And it happened, you know, again, in other instances where, you know, when when these people are attacked, they respond badly. They shrug it off, which then, of course, diminish, diminishes the value of the term. Right. The right now, though, is is kind of rallying behind uh, the pro-Israel groups because of their attacks on university presence, because they've kind of conflated and you know conflated it in their heads that this is an attack on wokeism in general, and they it, it, you know it, what it isn't. It's it's really it's really just a carve out and a return to grace, um, and that um, yeah no and and. There are a lot of people on the on the right are are, are you know networked right that are you know hardcore pro-Israel. Um, regardless, you know some from the evangelical side, some from the uh, of course the you know, large number of, of Jewish people who are on the right, like Shapiro and others. Yeah, no, it uh, yeah the rights the rights not firmly behind Israel on this. So I, I think they've lost everybody to a certain extent. Real quick, it wasn't just Candace Owens. I also saw that um, Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela Peterson, had Norman Finkelstein on her show. So, I mean, even if it's right. not totally dominant within the right, it's seeping in. You know? Oh, yeah. No, no, it, it is. And you know, or they, they had, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the foreign policy realist. Uh, John Mearsheimer. Uh, yeah, he was on. It's like, he was like, a, you know. Israeli lobby is dominating U.S. policy, and we're it's driving us off the cliff. You know, we're not being rational about it. We're not being we're not dominant. I mean, to a certain extent, if you wanted to kind of describe U.S. policy relative to China and Israel over the last twenty years, it's kind of like a battered wife. I mean, the stereotypical battered wife. It's like no matter how much uh, they're lied to, attacked, you know, physically and, and verbally how much they're morally debased by those countries, the U.S. will always come crawling back. You know, and it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to see, you know, a global superpower being so subservient to two, two countries that, I mean, I don't know if you know about all the stuff that China does to us on the back plane. I mean, they are fiercely aggressive, constantly against all our systems. They're attacking them, disrupting them, stealing from them. It is relentless. Anyone in any kind of cyberspace, any kind of defense and, and who looked at that, it, it, it's been that way for 15 years. It's nonstop. It's, it, and yesterday's incident where, the, where they have a Chinese national running around, put, you know, tagging, tagging, tagging synagogues with swastikas is like, 
it's all par for the course. So, but we don't take real action against them. You know, we started to, and then we backed off and said, Oh, we, we can't really do that. You know? And, uh, so it, it, it's weird. It's a, it's a weird kind of uh, relationship that government has with them. Just a few more things briefly here. If you have the time, when did you first start, start to get an inkling that things were maybe not going to go well for Israel in the 21st century? Because I think you said to Scott that even before uh, the oh, yeah. bombing of, of Gaza that is now underway, that it, you saw it coming a long time ago, as I think what yeah, you said. I, yeah, I wrote a brief about it back in 2021 after the last one I saw. It, it was shifting. It was shifting in this this uh, online dynamic. The tribes were aligning against it. Um, and that uh, my thinking was that, you know, what we saw with the BLM movement and others with network tribalism was that going to go global and start to affect international relations. And there would be one country singled out and attacked and disconnected. And it could happen really, really quickly, and it could be overwhelming. But what happened between that brief and now was that Russia stepped on it. And since Russia, since Putin was blamed for Trump right, and intervening elections, the whole thing, the network tribes opposed to Trump immediately attacked him and said, look, now this proves that he's evil. And that escalated to the point where now we're in a second Cold War out of nowhere. Right? I mean, you know. It's not very different from what Russia has been doing for the last 20 years, but now we're in a second Cold War and Russia was disconnected in a matter of weeks. Companies, individuals, people kicked off discussion boards. It's nuts. That kind of escalation that put us on the edge of, of, of potentially a nuclear scenario. But anyway, I predicted in 2021 with that with that brief and uh, happened to Russia first instead of Israel. But now we're seeing it with Israel and it's, uh, you know, they're far better at, the online more war, the online uh, online moral wars, moral wars in general, or guerrilla wars. They're better at that than than the Russians were, um, and that uh, for all the for all the hype that the Russians get, they're really pretty hamfisted at all their information operations. <laughs> I mean, they, that trickle that they did in 2016 had no effect. Like, oh, they got 110 million views on some hamfisted ad in 2020 2016, and. Uh, that somehow tangentially supported Trump, but there were billions upon billions of views of online content happening every day. You know, it was just lost in the, it was just, it wasn't even a rounding error. So um, anyway, Israel's, Israel's pro-Israel side is much, much better at running an uh, information war. I think they're just outclassed with this. It's just, there's just underlying dynamics and things that were set up that, uh, they can't overcome. Well, can you elaborate on that? Oh, no. It was the, uh, the educational baseline. And then the, you had the network tribes that were already existing. I mean, you know, the anti-racist crowd, the BLM folks go straight over and are supporting the pro-Palestinian position or, you know, the anti-Israel position. And uh, the anti-colonialist folks are already there. They were leading the, at the forefront. And, you know, we, we see, you know, Queers for Palestine on you know blocking roads in New York just the other day, and we saw you know on and on and on. It's all these groups will work as tandem. It it's they're being pulsed and and they see a common enemy and they'll join in. Uh, so you know tribal coalition is is pretty effective in this regard. And um, for the under forties, they're there. 
Um, that's the way they see the world. I don't think they're going to no amount of, of manipulating and, and, and changing the way it's covered on major media is going to have change anything. They've been pretty successful in, in shutting down any voice that's off narrative on Facebook and Instagram, but people are pretty much leaving that. Um, those are dying platforms. And um, X is not censoring and TikTok isn't censoring and they're resistant to it. Maybe you know TikTok's lack of lack of censorship has forced Israel now to the pro-Israel side is spending millions running advertisements that get no views, <laughs> you know, relatively limited views. I mean, they'll get views, but they don't get any likes on TikTok. It, it's really interesting because it, it you would think that Israel, with all its um, money that's put into Things like, I mean, there's a whole thing called the Jewish Internet Defense Force, uh, you, you know, that's funded to support, you know, pro-Israel talking points. Um, people like Scott Horton have talked about this, but they are being, it does seem like they're being outclassed by something that feels a lot more uh, grassroots and very disruptive. No, no one hears those establishment messages anymore. I mean, people who are under 50 who don't watch TV, they don't don't read the papers for the most part. At least in the print form, they see only selective articles. They don't hear those talking points. Um, so, getting every 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 one of the the people in positions of power and establishment authority to say the same thing doesn't have the same effect. And 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 most organizations are facing revolts. Do you think Israel has been uh, working from maybe an outdated or outmoded playbook? Oh, um, most definitely. But I don't think they could have avoided this. I mean, to a certain extent. I mean to a large extent, really, is that your behavior has to match your narrative, right? You know, this isn't really, to get kind of broad network support, you have to have some underlying truth involved. And you can't say that, okay, I mean, if you're bombing and you're not paying attention to civilian casualties and, you know, it's broadcast to the world, it's not going to, you know, provide you the kind of moral basis for building a broad coalition. It's just, it's got, there's a behavioral mismatch to any kind of messaging that they would be able to put together. So um, I don't think it works that well in the online environment. Do you think that, um, I, I know this is out, outside of Gaza, but do you think what's been going on in the West Bank with uh, reports of settler violence, which even people like Jake Tapper have had to report on it and say, you know, this is really terrible. And, you know, what these violent settlers are doing is really terrible. Do you think that's also thrown a monkey wrench into um, pro-Israel sentiments? Because you can't look at the West Bank situation and say, oh, that's Hamas's fault. Because it's, I mean, oh, it really is violent settlers. It's the nature of the, the problem. The problem for um, the pro-Israel folks is they have to defend all of Israel's actions by the nature of their organizational framework. And, and that puts them behind the eight ball in, in many regards. I mean, they have to defend everything all the time. And the constant defense is, is you know, saps from their you know, ability to take the offensive on anything. So, so that's, that, that, that sort of goes back to what you're saying about the pro-Palestinian or anti-Israel side, just taking the offensive approach and saying, we're just going to attack 
Israel and Israeli right. policy, and they're right. they're going on the offense, and that puts the pro-Israel elements on the defense, you know, because that means the pro-Palestinian side doesn't have to, you know, make excuses for Hamas or make arguments. They just have to keep focused on Israel, Israel does this, does this, it's wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Right. It worked against, like, it worked against Trump, right? So it's all attacks on Trump. There wasn't really anything about Biden at all. He didn't run anything. There was no talk about him. He was just, he won by default by being there. Not based on the competence or anything pro um, in his camp. No one had to defend him or defend his actions or defend what he said. It was all the fault of the other guy. And granted, the networks learned a lot from 2016 and they geared up to ensure that that, that that's the way it played out online. Um, so it was decided going into 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 twenty twenty. In fact, I even, you know, in October, just before the election, I wrote uh, uh, de-Trumpification because the election was already decided because of the way the networks were already set up, social networks were already censoring it, and the and if they were censoring it and and de-amplifying Trump's message and its supporters' message, there was no way he was going to win, and. Um, and then, you know, how the actual detropification process would work, including calling out to run a counterinsurgency against the, an overreaction from the Trump side that would use, be used as an incident to, to uh, crack down, which was January 6th. You know, a violent protest turns into, oh, magically, a uh, an insurrection. But, you know, there's like 20 people in that insurrection. The rest of them are just rioters. Before we close out, I also wanted to ask, uh, do you think the pro-Israel side also has a problem with maybe the figures that are the face of the pro-Israel side? I mean, there, there's groups like J Street, which I think take a much better approach. I mean, they're willing to be critical of Israel, and there seems to be some um, tact in, in doing that. But I think the real faces are people like Ben Shapiro, and I I, I know you said to Scott Horton, you know, he, he just comes off as just a very unlikable person. So I, I feel like there's a... Yeah, no, he's, he's got a punchable face. Yeah, he's <laughs> definitely got a punchable face and a voice. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it, it it doesn't make it much very appealing. I do think Israel, the pro-Israel folks are going to focus more on the anti-Semitism side if they can, you know, combine it anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism into a single entity um, because it allows them to focus exclusively on the attack um, and that they could they get out from having to explain Israel's actions. And they're just saying anyone who criticizes is the, is the enemy. And it'll be attack, 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 attack. If they get thwarted, like I think the uh, what they did in the universities, even though they had a success at Penn, is going to blow back on them because Every single university president is going to set up this, you know, is gearing up to to combat that in the future, and those charges and those kind of, you know, they're forcing a little change in the language that insulates their protesters, protects their faculty, things like that, and um, they're not going to be as easy to roll going forward, and they're going to start to see anyone who's using anti-Semitism as a weapon as the enemy, so you know. It's not gonna. It's not gonna end well. Do you see? I mean, um, well, go on. I'm sorry. No, no. It's just the, the uniformity across the whole academic 
establishment. Higher ed is like every, almost all faculty members, almost all students are in the anti-Israel camp, at least in regards to uh, its actions in Gaza and West Bank now. They don't see any threat. I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News again, John Robb. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and what do you hope they get out of this conversation we've been having? You know, what I try to do is just provide frameworks for understanding what's happening um, that are ex- both explanatory and predictive and relatively predictive. I mean, nothing's perfect, but it helps you get ahead, unfreezes you when you read the news and you're not like caught there. What the hell is going on? And um, you can at least have some way of approaching it. And um you don't have to agree with my frameworks. You can tweak them or you can replace them, but it, they're designed to get you thinking, you know, thinking in new ways, seeing some of the underlying dynamics, making sense of what, you know, the little stray bits of news that you're seeing that you don't, and it's not conspiratorial. It's um, explains the trends and explains the events. And often it's so predictive. You can get way ahead, like, you know, Israel or the election or any of that um, stuff. I you write about about five, six, seven years ago. People who've read read me for the last 20 say, oh, man, you were talking you know, about that six, seven years ago or 15 years ago. And it's just, see, this is like, it's happened. It happened. You know, I go, yeah. I mean, that's what you get from a good framework. And what, what's your Substack real quick? Oh, yeah. Oh, my Substack is, uh, uh, it's a Global Gorillas Report or, uh, you know, John Rob Substack in Google. And you'll find me, um, J-O-H-N-R-O-B-B. And uh, I have also have a Patreon which has some extra little bells and whistles on it. If you want to do that, you know, some people don't like to go one or the other, but you know, Patreon works. It's a little clunkier, but but also I have some kind of uh, I have a Discord connected to it that I haven't opened up on the on the subject side. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax News. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John Robb of Global Gorillas. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, that helps to keep this show afloat. I have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, but otherwise this show is entirely listener-supported. So, if you can... Hop on over to patreon.com slash parallaxviews and kick me some of your spare change. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.